Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact, and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. The dust of the midterm elections has not yet fully settled, but in all likelihood, Republicans will control the House by a narrow margin. And in many of these races, the Latino electorate played a very important factor. To speak about some of the midterm surprises, to help us interpret the Latino results, and to discuss how a Republican-controlled House might impact a series of policies regarding Mexico, that it is my pleasure to welcome former Cuban-American Congresswoman Ileana Ross Letinen. Ileana represented Florida's 27th Congressional District in Florida for almost 30 years. She was also chairwoman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Ileana, thank you very much for being here today. Let's assume that Republicans have control of the House. The Latino electorate, which is certainly not monolithic, was very important for both Democrats and Republicans. But we did not see the red wave that had been anticipated after the 2020 election. Although it is true, more Latinos voted Republican in this election, 39% of them, versus 32% in the previous election. But the map was not fully painted in red, with one exception, actually, Florida, your state. Before we speak about Florida, let me just ask you, how do you read these results? Well, first of all, Mariana, thank you so much for this wonderful invitation to be on your podcast, Mexico Matters. I am thrilled. It's the first time that I've been on your podcast, but I hope I don't do a terrible job so that you can invite me back. But you started with the important question of this election cycle. What happened? ¿Qué pasó? What happened to this red wave? We didn't even get a red ripple. And except for Florida, and we, as you say, we can talk about Florida in a bit. But what happened nationwide? You know, we had a set of circumstances that should have favored the Republicans. First of all, traditionally, since the beginning of elections here, whatever party is not in, uh, in power in the White House traditionally gains seats. And yes, we gained seats, but what happened is we already were at such a high number that then to get a wave would have been you know, almost biblical in, in proportions. It's really hard because we already started big. And it looks like, you're right, our, our, uh, we will be the majority, the Republicans will be the majority, But even though we had high inflation, even though we had high gas prices, even though President Biden was unpopular, according to the polls, even though we had a messy exit from Afghanistan, all of those factors should have given the Republicans a better result. And we had recruited wonderful candidates, Mariana. This time, just about every person had, a, had an opponent. So I was happy with the Republicans uh, recruiting candidates funding candidates, and the candidates were very prepared. 
this is my thoughts. It doesn't mean that I'm right. But I think there were two factors that hurt us. Number one, Donald Trump. Still, many individuals uh, see him as a polarizing figure. Even those who support him have got to recognize that he is not exactly a bridge builder. So he has his base, but he doesn't build from that. So number one, I think the negative reaction to, to Donald Trump hurt us. He picked candidates in certain Senate races, and they were too extreme for some of the voters because you can't just win with your own party. And number two, uh, another, another factor that I think hurt us, even if it was just a little bit, and that was the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court decision on abortion. Yes, I mean, I'm pro-life. I like that decision, but, but I know that it's a very divisive issue. Even if it just moves one, two, three, four percent, that is enough to get you to be a winner or a loser. And look at these tight races. On the day that we're taping this podcast, the Republicans still don't have a majority. Maybe by the time it airs, we will, because any moment now, they're, but they're still, as of today's recording day, still 10 races left to be called. And so even if, even if those two issues, the polarization of Donald Trump and the divisive nature of abortion, even if they just move one, two or three percent, that is enough of a factor to have really impacted many, 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 many races. So I congratulate my party for having done a good job. But I feel bad for my good friend, Kevin McCarthy, who I think will be speaker, even though there's a lot of, you know, uh, jostling about. But, oh, my gosh, Mariana, isn't that a thankless task to be a speaker when you only have one or two or three votes in your majority, that's going to be tough. Completely. I, I fully agree with you. And just to go, to go back a little bit, you know, you mentioned inflation, you mentioned the economy, you mentioned Afghanistan. You know, based on sort of the, the polls that I have read, the economy and health were among the, you know, first and two most important issues for the nation overall. What were the most important issues for Latinos? Were they similar to the overall population? Well, very good question, Mariana. And I have read several different uh, poll results on this. Some polls indicate that maybe not the number one issue, but Hispanics tend to look at education as a very important issue for them. And, and maybe not, it's not going to figure to be the number one issue, but Hispanic Latino families want to make sure that their kids are going to a safe school, a school without drugs, that they're living in a neighborhood without crime, uh, that their school is safe. And uh, we've had, as you know, terrible school shootings at one in Uvalde, Texas, a very Hispanic town. So it, it, it doesn't just involve a certain demographic. Crime is involving all, all communities. So I would say crime, safety, education matters a little bit more to Latinos, the polls have indicated, than, than to other, other populations. And I think that the, the economy, in the sense that Latinos want to be small business owners, and we are the fastest growing demographic in the United States, and we want to be, we want to have our own small businesses. So I think that that's where the Republican Party 
can have a real boost in the next go around if we emphasize those those issues, education, safety, and economic empowerment, the ability to have your own business. Those are strong issues for the Latino community. And I think the Republicans can do a very good job on, on those, uh, those issues. As you said, Latinos are, are certainly the fastest growing portion of the nation's total economic output. So I am not surprised that inflation, the economy, security were very high on their list. You mentioned the issue of abortion. How did abortion play among Latino women? Were they more inclined to protect the abortion right or were they more religious? You know, because there was there is this perception that Latinos are more religious and therefore they would be against abortion. How do you read Latinos in this regard? Well, traditionally, we have been a, a pro-life community, but I think that uh, Republicans have to be careful about how they talk about this issue. As you know, that decision of the Supreme Court doesn't mean that abortion is outlawed. It just means that states will regulate it. It will just be more expensive and less secure, probably. And so what we will have, Mariana, is maybe in Florida, you can't get an abortion, but maybe in Maryland and Virginia and, and Maine and Vermont, you can get an abortion. So it'll be state by state. Maybe people don't like that. I understand that. But uh, we have to be very careful and cognizant of, of uh, how controversial this issue is. And I don't think that either party is going to win on the abortion issue. I think that there will be many other issues for the Hispanic voter. I don't know about this candidate. What is his views on the economy? What is his views on school choice? You know, parental rights. There are many issues. But I don't know that a lot of Latinos vote just on the abortion issue or, or even non-Latinos. So it's one of several factors that the candidate has to think about and that the voter considers. And you weigh the, 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 the pros and the cons. So as a party, I think that we all have to be respectful that everyone has a different point of view and, uh, and that we respect the Supreme Court and what they decide. You know, we have institutions. One of the things that has troubled me lately, Mariana, is the respect of the institutions and the respect for democracy that's been dwindling. And you have people who, who think that the elections are fake and that there's a voting manipulation going on and, and they lose faith in our democratic institutions. You know, the Supreme Court now for the first time is looked on not favorably by many individuals. And I think that's a shame. We have a system of, of checks and balances and rules and laws and we've got to uh, respect the institutions because they're, they are what make our representative democracy work. You know, we have state, uh, we have executive branch, we have the legislative branch and the judicial branch. And there's checks and balances so that no branch overrides the other. It has worked since the founding of our great republic. And I hope that Hispanics feel great pride about, about being Americans about voting, and I hope that they come out, we come out in record numbers in two years. What I think is very important is that in this election, you saw an incredible number, millions of people came out to vote. You know, the young people came out to vote, and 
you know, as opposed to the other elections that you were referring to, in this election, people accepted the results. And I yes. think that speaks greatly about the state of your democracy. I know. And you know what, what worried me greatly is that some people, some candidates who were running to be secretaries of state in their state, and these are the people who control elections, they, they write the guidelines and the rules and the laws about how ballots are counted. These are individuals who did not, who still believe that Donald Trump won the presidency and that the election was stolen from, from Donald Trump. And that is what we call the big lie. It is a lie. Joe Biden is the legitimate president of the United States of America. Donald Trump lost the election. And we had individuals who to this day were saying, no, President Trump won and the election was stolen. And look at all the controversy about Arizona and Pennsylvania. And it was just crazy. And I think that that does a great disservice to our system of government. And I hope that people have faith once again in our election system and, and will come out to vote. Because if people don't think that their vote counts, they will stay home. And Mariana, you saw how close these elections were, how close. And if anybody is listening to us who thinks my my vote doesn't make a difference, it does. And, uh, you know, there's a member of Congress who is sitting right now as a member of Congress. She won her election by uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco, seis, six votes, six votes. It's unbelievable. So your vote matters. Your vote counts. And please go out there in two years. We're going to do this again. Go out there and let's show America how strong the Latino vote is. Vote for whoever you want to vote for, but come out to vote. Ileana, you mentioned Donald Trump. Well, if there was one candidate that did not embrace him nor his rhetoric was Governor DeSantis. And he did incredibly well, not only among whites, but particularly among Latinos. I was looking at a CNN poll showing that DeSantis won 58% of the Latino vote in Florida. That is almost the exact opposite of how Latinos voted for the Republican candidates nationwide, which has them at around 39%. And not only Cuban Americans are included in this number, but also Puerto Rican, Venezuelans, Colombian, and Mexicans. Him and Senator Rubio also won Miami-Dade County, which, as you know, has traditionally been a Democratic stronghold. Why was Florida so different than the rest of the nation? Well, first of all, thank you, Mariana, because you so expertly described the Latino voter and the elections of, of Marco Rubio, the elections of, uh, of Ron DeSantis. And we need to study that. What did they do? to capture so many Latino votes. Florida was a perfectly run election. First of all, uh, as we're taping this, some votes are still being counted in California and Arizona. Florida's election was boom, boom, boom. An hour after polls closed, people knew the results and there's been no controversy. So first of all, we run great elections. But secondly, I think that Latinos responded to the positive message of Governor DeSantis and Marco Rubio about what we need is a strong economy. Latinos like that. 
What we need is to be united. Let's not be divided. We want to open up our state and we want all of the people who are paying higher taxes in New York and California to come to uh, what Governor DeSantis calls the free state of Florida. One of the key aspects for Governor DeSantis was that he has a Hispanic woman as his lieutenant governor. So lieutenant governor, sort of like the vice president of the state. Jeanette Nunez is a daughter of Cuban immigrants. Uh, she was a member of the state legislature, a hospital executive, and uh, was doing just a great job. In these four years, Jeanette Nunez turned out to be an amazing campaigner, a great elected official. And so that first of all, he had that secret weapon. He had a lieutenant governor who was Hispanic and who really understood uh, the Latino community. She lives, she's from Miami, Florida. I knew her, I know her very well. She's a, a close personal friend. So Jeanette Nunez was one of the keys to the victory. And number two, I think that his positive message of we're a great state, but we're going to be an even greater state. And I want you and your small business to flourish. And I want to get rid of uh, excessive regulations. And I don't want to close your store because of COVID. I want your business to be open. And so I think that that message of the free state of Florida really resonated with folks. And uh, Latinos responded to that. Also, he was very, very strong on sanctions against dictators like the one in, in Cuba, in Venezuela, and Nicaragua. So he had a pro-America and an anti-communist point of view. So for certain groups, they responded to that. For the Puerto Rican vote, they saw in Ron DeSantis someone who was very respectful of the Puerto Rican community. He's for statehood, but he understands that there are other points of view. And the way that he spoke about, about Puerto Rico really made a difference. So that's why he did so well with Puerto Rican voters. And he did well with Latino voters from the panhandle all the way down to Key West. When you look at a map of Florida, we have 67 counties, and, and it is all red except for five counties. Uh, he, he swept, even in, as you pointed out, Mariana, Miami-Dade County that has never seen a Republican governor win by record numbers. We voted for Jeb Bush, who's a great personal friend of mine, so he did very well. But Ron DeSantis did even better. And it's the way that he, his tone, his, his message of, uh, of being positive. And I think people want a leader who inspires them. And I hope that Ron DeSantis uh, runs for president. But even if he doesn't, I hope that he, he finishes his term as four years of, of governor because he's just been tremendous, a tremendous leader for Florida. Let me move to a... A more sensitive issue, Governor DeSantis made reducing immigration a top priority. In fact, about half of Latinos in Florida were in favor of DeSantis flying Venezuelan immigrants to Martha's Vineyard last summer. Immigration is indeed a very hot issue, and a majority of Americans disapprove of how President Biden handled this issue. Moving forward, in order to govern with a divided Congress, President Biden will need to find some areas of bipartisan consensus. How do you see the issue of migration unfolding in the next two years, and especially as we move forward to the presidential election? That is such a great question. Boy, Mariana, you have done your homework, and, and I think you framed the issues expertly well. I am hoping, I'm hoping, hoping, hoping that we can do 
a little bit of that already in the lame duck session. Lame duck means members of Congress who've already been elected or who have lost their seats, but they're still members until January. That's when they do the swearing in of the new members. So they will be in session for some of November and some of December. And I'm hoping, Mariana, I'm hoping and praying that we can pass a bill that will strengthen border security and at the same time, so that will get the conservatives to vote for it, but also will help the DREAMers, DACA, DACA recipients. And these are young people who came to the United States when they were very young. You know, they're adults now, but they're, you know, they were two or three. You can't ship them back to Mexico. They don't even know Mexico. They came here when they were very young and they've grown up here. They're as American as apple pie. But we have not been able to legalize their status or give them a path to citizenship. They are here thanks to judges who have made decisions favoring them. So it's been a patchwork. You know, this judge will do it and another judge will do it. But that's not that's not good for for the dreamers. If they want to get a scholarship, if they want to get promoted in their jobs, if they want to get a job, they will be asked, what's your immigration status? And they'll say, well, I'm a DACA recipient, but that can run out at any moment. So, Mariana, I think that what we have to do is fix the border issue. At the same time, we have to give hope and a pathway forward for DREAMers. I'm hoping we can set this up already between now and January. I think that we can do it. President Biden said he wants to do it. Uh, speaker Pelosi says she wants to do it. And remember, she's still the speaker until January 3rd. And we have a coalition of Republican senators who also want to do it. So with Nancy Pelosi controlling the House, and if we can get 10 Republican senators to go along with it, I think that we can we can uh, make these dreams come true. So I'm always an optimist. I'm thinking that we can start the groundwork and if you want to do real immigration reform, like I do, what we have to do is fix the problem at the border. Because unless we do that, you will never have people voting for immigration reform because they'll say, I can't legalize anybody's status. They're, they're still coming through the border. So I'm hoping that we can do something. Title 42, which is the controversial issue that uh, President Trump started and then but President Biden had to continue it because there were just too many people at the border. And now it's sort of frozen. Let me just interrupt you for a second to explain what Title 42 is. It's a ruling that allowed the U.S. government to expel migrants at the Mexican border for health reasons. The pandemic, a health problem. That's right. And, and so President Biden criticized President Trump for using this. But then when President Biden became president, president, he saw, oh my goodness, even I have to put this in place because there are just too many people coming through the borders. And so even though he was not in favor of it, he had to implement using Title 42 so he could stop people from coming to the border. And now judges have made a decision that it's not, it can't happen. We can't use that. So, you know, when you have judicial decisions, that's not a good way to have an immigration system because you want certainty, you want continuity and a judicial decision here and a judicial decision there, it doesn't give you certainty nor continuity. So I'm optimistic, Mariana. I'm like Hubert Humphrey said, he called himself a happy warrior. I'm a happy warrior. 
I'm optimistic that we can make this happen. And if we get a good coalition of Republican senators and then the Democrats in the House, we can make this bill into a law. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the whole conversation about immigration reform hasn't really moved because the two parties are standing in very different positions. On the one side, you have the Republicans that do not even want to engage in this conversation if the issue of border security is not addressed. While for Democrats, the issue really has been to legalize the millions of people that are already in this country illegally. Are you saying that there is a coalition that will allow to make this bridge by legalizing the, the dreamers only? We're working on that. Now, I don't think that uh, we're going to get 10 Republican senators unless we really have a solution for border security. So we're working on getting those senators. We've had very good conversations just because I'm passionate about this issue because I want immigration reform and I don't want these young people to get deported. So it's a passion of mine to work on it and many good people are working on it. So I'm hoping if we have a real border security solution that we're working on that, that then we can deliver votes for DACA. So I think, I think it's doable. I'm always an optimistic person. Ileana, we cannot talk about border security without me addressing the issue of Mexico. And now that the midterm elections are over, President Biden will face fewer electoral pressures that were tying his hands. For one, he needed president, the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel López Obrador, to help him control the migrants at the border. And in exchange, he was willing not to antagonize AMLO, as he's called, over his energy policies, which have affected billions of investments. So USTR has extended consultations, but has not yet created a panel to decide on this issue. With a Republican-controlled Congress, will there be more pressure on the administration to bring Mexico to abide by, by its commitments? Very good. Boy, you really do your homework. I'm telling you, you have you asked the best questions. Well, as you know, Obrador has had a rocky relationship with President Biden, and it all came to a head at the Summit of the Americas that was taking place a few months ago in Los Angeles. And since we, President Biden, to his credit, only invited democracies, that means that he did not invite Cuba, did not invite Nicaragua, and did not invite the leader of, uh, of Venezuela because they're illegitimate uh, leaders. And because of that, he decided, AMLO decided, I'm going to boycott it. So the Summit of the Americas without the president of Mexico is not much of a Summit of the Americas because Mexico is the big gorilla in terms of uh, population, in terms of uh, power and prestige. So it, it's been a rocky relationship between the presidents of both countries. I'm hoping that we can see a way to normalize these tensions, to, to get back to diplomatic recognition of each other and say, look, Mexico, it's not in your favor to have all of these migrants come into your country. I mean, Mexico does not win anything by doing this. And, and it's a real problem with gangs and with drugs. So it's in our interest, but also in Mexico's interest to try to get rid of this border crisis. And by doing so, we get rid of gang problems. We get rid of illicit drugs 
and and money, illicit money transfers, you name it. I mean, heaven knows we have seen those underground tunnels that are that are just incredible and and gangs that control certain areas of Mexico. No one wants to live like that. And the president of Mexico doesn't want that either. So we both have similar interests in making sure that we can have our economies grow, our people be safe, and get rid of this illegal immigration. So I am optimistic that even though it's been a rocky road, and that was manifested in the Summit of the Americas, that uh, AMLO and Biden will, will get together in a summit and will work things out, whether it's trade. We depend on one another. There's incredible trade and incredible traffic from, from Mexico to the United States. We depend on that, and they depend on this good economic relations with the United States as well. But, you know, unfortunately, I think President López Obrador understands that he has leverage. He does have leverage. Yeah. And I remember back in, in 2019 when uh, President Trump wanted Mexico to cooperate in curbing migration, that he threatened to impose blank tariffs on Mexico with a Republican Congress. And now that the midterm elections are behind us, is there at all possible that we could see something like that, especially if Mexico doesn't cooperate on, you know, sort of changing its energy policies that are affecting U.S. interests and, US and North American competitiveness? Mariana, we used to have so many trade agreements in the time that I was in Congress and I was almost there almost almost 30 years 29 and stuff but we had a free trade you know not not just nafta and CAFTA. we had a free trade agreement with india we had a free trade agreement with south korea we had a, we had free trade agreements just about every every six months or so i can't remember the last time that we really talked about a new trade agreement yes we had the usmc that was just making some corrections between the united states and, and mexico but a real a real trade deal, we're long overdue. And I hope that the Republican Congress remembers that we are a party of a free trade. Sometimes many in my party become isolationists and they say, you see some, some Republicans saying, oh, we shouldn't help Ukraine because we have problems here. We have to help Ukraine. They wanna be free and they're fighting. They're fighting themselves, they're fighting, they're giving blood themselves, sacrificing themselves. So we need to help Ukraine. And at the same time, uh, some of the newer Republicans don't want trade. And they think that the trade deals have benefited other countries at the expense of the United States. So we want free and fair trade. And we want to have a trade agreement uh, with Mexico that is going to be beneficial. So I'm optimistic that those isolationist or libertarian Republicans will be in the minority and that we will once again be the party for trade, free and fair trade, but trade and, and to help other countries. Right. And a very important part of having a trade agreement is being, you know, actually abiding by it and being able to enforce it. So, uh, you know, otherwise it undermines the whole importance of having a trade agreement, right? Absolutely. We need a trade agreement that will be enforced and that, that all of the parties agree to, and that we need a USTR, a United States Trade Representative, who is bullish 
on having new trade agreements with our neighbors, especially democratic countries. Let me touch one very sensitive issue. A few days ago, some senators sent a letter to USTR, to Ambassador Catherine Tai. It was regarding the issue of corn. And President López Obrador is threatening to impose a ban on U.S. corn. As you know, Mexico is the United States' second largest importer of corn. And if, if, if actually this decree it goes forward, it could be devastating for a lot of Republican states, such as Iowa, Nebraska, but also to the United States in general. It is estimated that the United States will lose about 70 billions and lose 30,000 jobs. I mean, it, forget about the devastation that it will cause to Mexico. So how do you, could Congress limit trade with Mexico if we were to go forward with this ban? Well, I think that it's very important for Mexico to understand that in agricultural states, there is no way that a U.S. senator can agree and vote in favor of any trade agreement that's going to hurt their crop, whether it's corn, whether it's tomatoes, whether it's soybeans, you name it. Whatever it is, this is very personal, especially to U.S. senators, and they're the ones who have a lot to say about these trade deals. So before we get too far off into the, the final uh, aspects of, of this trade deal, I want Mexico to really understand that that's something that's going to be too difficult for these senators to swallow. It just they, We already feel that we have hurt our, our agriculture community very much, deeply. And I don't think anyone is going to be willing to hurt our ag interest one more time. Ileana, I know you have to go. I just want to close by emphasizing what you just said about the importance of the U.S. government and STR to be more forceful and enforce the trade deal it has with Mexico and others. It is not only in the interest of the United States, but it's, it is also in Mexico's interest. From your mouth to God's ears, Mariana, muchísimas gracias. Thank you so much. It was a delight to have been with you. You covered so many topics. It was really amazing. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to you. Bendiciones to all of our listeners. Thank you. Mexico matters. Saludos. I am Mariana Campero. Thank you very much for listening. Gracias, Ileana. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 